come on a journey with a cinephile. to episode number 31 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always your tour guide david garrett jr recording here out of columbus ohio and here on this episode i am going back into the journey through the aughts this will be episode number six of that where i'll have featured reviews of the ghost breakers from 1940 as well as the 2020 release will be Dreamcatcher, and that is with Dreamcatcher with a k by the way and then I also have mini reviews of Cheerleader Camp and I Am Legend. So it's a little bit lighter on that front there. But since this is technically the first episode that is being recorded in the month of June, I should recap what I did in the month of May. Monthly Review. For the month of May, I ended up watching 36 total movies. 30 of which were horror movies, and 4 of which were released in 2020 to count towards, you know, my year-end total. But the horror movies that I watched in the month of May are Blood Rage, Mary Riley, The Ape, Covenant, The Quiet Ones, The Omen, Zombieland Double Tap, The Slayer, 1 Million BC, Jekyll Plus Hyde, A Virgin Among the Living Dead, Porno, Lore, Julia's Eyes, The Curse of the Komodo, we Summon the Darkness, Dr. Cyclops, Sleepwalkers, Girls' Night Out, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, this is from 1931, A Chinese Ghost Story, that is the remake there, and I should also point the omen that I also watched was a remake as well, Grave Encounters and Grave Encounters 2, Cursed, Super Dark Times, Before I Hang, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1955, The Wretched, The Dark Half, and The Ghost Breakers. The 2020 releases that I watched in the month of May would also be Covenant, Porno, We Summon the Darkness, and The Wretched. Now the oldest movie that I watched would of course be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as that came from 1931. And then my highest rated is a four-way tie between Julia's Eyes, Super Dark Times, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and The Wretched. And that was the Jekyll and Hyde of 31 as well. That would come in there as those were all at an eight. And then the lowest rated film that I watched of this month would have been The Ape from 1940 as that came in with a four out of 10. So those are all of the things I wanted to recap there in my monthly review. Now what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. Enjoy.
welcome back. Now for my first mini review of this week, as it looks like it's going to be pretty light, but I have Cheerleader Camp from 1988. This is directed by John Quinn. It is written by David Lee Fian and R.L. O'Keefe. This stars Betsy Russell, Leif Garrett, and Lucinda Dickey. This is a comedy horror thriller from the United States and Japan. This is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, a group of cheerleaders become the targets of an unknown killer at a remote summer camp. This is a movie that I actually remember seeing at the video store growing up, but it never hooked me to rent it. Now, mind you, I was probably avoiding it because knowing that my father would probably veto this one, as blood and gore for him wasn't an issue for me to watch, but nudity kind of was back then, and when I would have possibly been trying to check this out. I know I heard about this on podcasts, which is why I put it on a list of films to see, but it had been a while since they talked about it, and I didn't remember a whole lot. But this one, for the most part, follows Allison Wentworth, who is Betsy Rutzel, which I realize is from the Saw series as John Kramer's wife. But she is our main character and she is having trouble with nightmares and she is actually taking drugs to help them. But then they go off to this remote summer camp for cheerleading and the rest of the team with her there is, you know, her crew and her boyfriend is actually the one that drives them out there who is played by, you know, the teen heartthrob Leaf Garrett. But this movie actually plays more like a giallo minus the black glove killer. Now we do get some of that killer POV in this one, but we actually don't get, you know, wearing the gloves or anything like that. But the film does a little bit trying to work with red herrings, which I did like, and it also is pretty sleazy to be honest. But I'll also say it's a bit boring though. Most of the deaths that we get are off screen. And after the first one, which we just end up discovering it, we don't get the next kill until about a little over halfway through the movie. And then it kind of picks up from there. But by then I kind of just, it didn't carry me enough and didn't bring me back in. And again, a lot of the deaths even then are off screen, but the effects that we get are good as there is one where a girl gets killed with hedge clippers that I thought was pretty solid with what they did there. This one also uses a lot of dream sequences as how they tie in with Allison's inadequate feelings with her low self-esteem. I thought that worked pretty well in building this character and her trying to think that there is an actual killer here where nobody else really seems to think this. So I thought they did pretty well in establishing that. And I mean, the acting is pretty basic if I'm going to be honest like it's not very great because this actually plays more like a raunchy comedy in my opinion which is actually kind of fitting because we have the director here would go on to do a lot of softcore porn that you would see on like HBO or Cinemax and stuff like that so it does make a whole lot of sense as most of the male characters in this are misogynistic and I really just had trouble connecting with them because of how shitty the decisions that they were making now it's hard for me to come to like come down hard on this one for that because this did come out in the you know late 80s as we are getting, you know, that change there where slashers are becoming more comedy. But I still just, it's hard for me to kind of get behind that. As Leif Garrett is character of Brent Hoover, is literally trying to sleep with everybody around him. George Buckflower, the great character actor, he's in this as a creepy caretaker at this, known as Pop. And then you also have the creepy chef, Ronnie, who is William Johnson. Like, they're all literally just checking out these girls that are supposed to be in high school. And even the Sheriff Poucher in this, of Jeff Prettyman, is doing the same exact thing. And I really just had problems with that. It just feels dirty. 
Now, I did like Corey Foster, who is Dickie in this movie. I thought she did a pretty solid job overall. And then we get some other actor, actors and actresses here of like Lori Griffin, who is Bonnie Reed, who plays the ditzy blonde. Timmy Mosier is played by Travis McKenna. He is a pervert through and through, and I really just had issues with his character for that. And then it's also kind of interesting is that we had Terry Weagle here before she went on to do more porn. And then we also have... Krista Flazer, who was a penthouse playmate. So this film knew exactly what it was doing. And a lot of that was just, like I said, a raunchy sex comedy where we have a lot of nudity and a little bit of the horror elements tied in. So I really just had, you know, trouble really kind of enjoying this. And I found this to be below average in my opinion and came in with a four out of 10 on this movie, unfortunately. And I think a lot of that too is just the fact that I... I'm not the biggest slasher fan, but I'm also not the biggest fan of slasher films that aren't that great. I do like the good ones, the ones that really kind of pull your attention, and I've been trying to find more of these hidden gems. This one really just wasn't that for me, unfortunately. And the other film that I watched for this week is I Am Legend from 2007. This was directed by Francis Lawrence. It is from a screenplay that was co-written between Mark Protosevich and Akiva Goldsman. It comes from the novel by Richard Matheson, and this seems to be more based on the Omega Man screenplay, which was written by John William Corrington and Joyce Hooper Corrington. This stars Will Smith, Alice Braga, and Charlie Tahan. This is technically an action-adventure drama sci-fi thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being at years after a plague kills most of humanity and transforms the rest into monsters, the sole survivor in New York City struggles valiantly to find a cure in this post-apocalyptic action thriller. Now, this movie I was intrigued to check out after I realized that my sister and I would watch another version of the same story, The Omega Man, which I didn't realize until writing this review and then for doing you know this podcast review of it that it was more based on that screenplay than necessarily the novel but i will say this movie actually has the name from the book itself because i am legend is the name of the the novel that richard matheson had wrote i did see this for the first time in theaters and then again when i got this dvd that i watched now jamie wanted to watch a movie that she had seen before just in case she fell asleep and this is the one that i planned on revisiting anyway so we decided to give this one a go and just to kind of give a little bit more background information to this movie it starts off with a news report from a dr alice crippen who is emma thompson and she believes she's found the cure for cancer and it was taking the measles virus and making some alterations to it and it was able to cure of all the test subjects of them you know of all their cancer that they had at that time now the movie then shifts three years into the future where we have robert neville who is will smith and he's the last survivor in new york city now it goes about showing us what a daily routine for his life has become now and we get to see some interesting dynamics here and i think a lot of this is will smith's acting is so good in this movie where we see that the isolation is wearing on him he's talking to his dog which that's not too unnormal i mean i do it to my cat all the time but what i really wanted to delve into here is that he has a bunch of mannequins set up and he talks to them like they're real people and there's a scene where he kind of has a crush on one of them and it seems a little bit weird for somebody like me or anybody now watching this but if you're in isolation and you don't have anyone to communicate with i can see doing things like this as you're just trying to create some more normalcy to your life but then there is something dark that is 
you know, kind of a foot in the city as there are a lot of people that I know in the novel, they're vampire like creatures, but in this one, they are definitely monsters. Now, Will Smith is trying to come up with a vaccine or a cure to what has happened. And that is partially why he got stuck on this island here in New York City as his we get to see flashbacks of his wife, Zoe, and his daughter, Marley, who is actually played by his real life daughter, Willow Smith. He had them escape in a helicopter while he was going to stay and try to figure out a cure to this. Now, he's still doing this as he has a bunch of rats that he's infected with this virus or whatever it is. And he's trying to do different trials on them to see if there's a way to cure it as he is immune to everything. And I think this is another kind of cool thing where he thinks he's come up with a serum that will actually work. And then he decides to do what he considers to be human trials, where he goes out and captures one of these creatures. Now, here is something that I did find quite interesting about this version of the film, is that he thinks that these people are delving into being more like animals and less human, like human, because he sees what is the alpha male who is portrayed by Dash Hymock. And what he was doing is he comes outside and is screaming because Robert seems to have taken the alpha female and he's the alpha male. What Robert doesn't realize, though, is that they're not delving into being animals, is that he was in love with the one that was just taken, and he was showing his displeasure. And it becomes this alpha male's goal is to get back at Robert for taking his mate. I do think that this one loses a little bit by not having the humanity of the creatures. I know this is me kind of comparing them to the other versions, but I like where there's still a little bit of humanity in them because I think it messes with Robert even more, knowing that the only other people that he is encountering are these that are infected. So that's really just something that does hurt it for me a little bit. Being that this is an hour and 41 minutes, it doesn't really feel like it. It, mo it flies through everything that we get here. I think the acting is really good across the board as, I mean, Will is the, the star here, but Alice Braga, Charlie Tahan... And then the rest of the cast, I think, really just do well in supporting him. But like I said, it's his performance and the emotions that he brings to this is really the, the main star here. And the other thing that doesn't really hold up for me is the CGI that we get. I mean, there's animals in this that are CGI. They're, the creatures are heavily CGI'd. For me, it doesn't hold up, and it just kind of got on my nerves, and I kept pointing it out, and it's just not very good in my opinion. But that's really all I wanted to delve into for this mini-review of I Am Legend. I still enjoy this one. I do believe my rating has come down over these last few viewings that I've done with it, but I'm going to come in with a 7 out of 10 here. And that's all the mini-reviews that I'm going to have for this week. I haven't got a lot of movie watching in, and I've watched some things that are non-horror as well, but I'm hoping I can get everything kind of picked back up here again as work kind of picked up, so that kind of made it a little bit more difficult on my end. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review for this episode. Ghostbreakers Incorporated. You make them, we shake them. Bob Hope speaking. Yes, Paulette Goddard's a partner in this firm. What? You want me to send her around? <laughs> Listen, if I could tell Paulette what to do, I wouldn't send her to your house. Sucker. You know, I never knew there were so many ghosts roaming around loose until Paulette and I got into the ghost breakers. Believe me, the cat in the canary was a pink tea compared to this picture. It all starts on one terrible night. Basil Rathbone must be giving a party. That's the night that Paulette inherits a ghostly ancient castle off the ghost, I mean the coast of Cuba. The place is filled with mummies and spooks that walk at midnight. 
There are murders and death warnings planned to frighten Paulette and me, but we ain't frightened. I'll match you to see who faints first. Carter's voice. Ah, that's what they're trying to make us believe. Paulette and I are such good ghost breakers is that we don't believe in ghosts. <laughs> or do I? Welcome back, everybody. And on this episode, the first featured review is going to be The Ghost Breakers from 1940. This is directed by George Marshall. This comes from a screenplay by Walter D. Leon, and it comes off of a play that was written by Paul Dickey and Charles W. Goddard. This stars Bob Hope, Paulette Goddard, and Richard Carlson. This is a comedy horror mystery film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a radio broadcaster. His quaking manservant and an heiress investigate the mystery of a haunted castle in Cuba. Now, this is a film that I remember hearing about years ago, but never really had the urge to check it out. I will admit, I wasn't the biggest fan of black and white horror films for the most part. And then on top of that, when I kind of read a little bit about this film, I just really didn't really have a whole lot of interest. But that all changed as I've come around to the Universal films quite a few years ago, but I still hadn't come to these ones that are kind of in the middle section here between you know this and everything being more colorized. I do like quite a bit of the Atomic Age like sci-fi films, but this one came up on my journey through the aughts, and I was intrigued to see this when I saw, you know, being on a list of 1940, having known about it a little bit, and then seeing Bob Hope star in it, as I will get into this a little bit later, but there's another film recently that I watched starring him, and I was kind of intrigued there. But we start this movie off in a motel, where we have Mary Carter, who is Paulette Goddard, meeting with Javes, who is Pedro de Corboda, in her hotel room. We learn that she has inherited a castle on an island just off of Cuba, and he's there to handle the paperwork. Now, he tries to change her mind, but she's hardworking and won't be scared off by the ghost stories that are surrounding the place that she has inherited. Soon after joining them is Parada, who is Paul Lucas, who I believe is from the Cuban government, and he's there to make the transaction official. But he also offers her $50,000 to not take the property, but again, she does decline this. Now, there's another wrinkle that is added here when a Ramon Medeiros, who is Anthony Quinn, calls her to warn her not to go to the island and kind of bringing up the ghost stories and everything. And then also during this, we get this scene where the power goes out and Mary goes out in the hallway to check on getting some candles and whatnot and has an interaction with another person on her floor. Now, this power outage doesn't just happen here, but all over the city. 
And this causes problems at the place of Lawrence Lawrence, who is Bob Hope. He has a guy, Raspy Kelly, who is Tom Duggan, comes to his building from the storm and tries to ring up to his room. Now, his servant is Alex, who is Willie Best. He answers, and they really can't seem to understand each other for whatever reason, but he does let him up. And then Larry, we learn, works for a radio station, and they're pretty much open no matter what. So Larry has to go into work. Now, while he's there, he broadcasts over the air dirt on criminals, and Raspy is here to, you know, give him some information as he's pretty much like an informant to kind of give these stories over the radio. Now, this does make Larry nervous, but he does learn from Raspy that these criminals usually kind of just enjoy it as it gives them some, I guess, publicity. But on top of that, though, not everything that they give is correct. But then the power comes back on. Larry goes into work for his last broadcast before he leaves for vacation. Now, he does reveal some information about a gangster named Frenchie Duval, who is portrayed by Paul Fix. Now, this rubs him the wrong way, and he contacts Larry before he's able to leave the station and wants him to come to his hotel room. Now, Larry does get spooked, though, when he arrives, and Alex ends up giving him a gun before going in. But because Larry is so scared, he's shaking and has the gun in hand. Now, he gets caught up in something between Javez and Ramon, which leaves Larry thinking that he killed Ramon. And then he hides out in Mary's room. Now, she does allow this, but there's a bit of a mix-up. Larry hides inside of her trunk and then gets locked inside when a bellhop comes to remove it to take it to the vessel that she will be taking to get to Cuba. Now, some funny scenes end up happening where Mary and Alex are trying to get him out before he's loaded onto the vessel, but that doesn't happen. And so he ends up in the estate room for Mary. Now, while he's there, he does overhear a conversation between her and Javez. Larry doesn't trust him and comes up with a plan that he is going to be what they call, I guess, a ghost breaker and that he's going to exercise any ghosts that are inside of this castle. As he agrees with Mary, he doesn't think there's anything there, but Alex does. And he's also on this ship as they're going to go, you know, like I said, to prove that there isn't anything on the, in this castle that is located on Black Island. There is a weird thing I kind of want to interject here is he's a stowaway, but they end up giving him a room, which I'm just wondering if they didn't have all of the cabins booked on this vessel or what but it was a little bit weird that he ends up getting a room but then forces alex who is his black manservant to watch over mary's room the rest of the night so nothing bad happens to her now he does get faced with a chance to go back to new york and larry decides to keep his word and stay on the vessel to help out mary and then this leads them on a path encountering a southern southern gentleman of jeff montgomery who is Richard Carlson, a zombie who is Noble Johnson, his mother who is Virginia Bresak, and then possibly a haunted castle. Now that's where I want to leave my recap as I was trying to figure out what I would start with in my actual review of the film. Now normally I go off of the story and it didn't surprise me that the more I looked into this one to find that it was based off a play like I said earlier. Not everything in this era of movies were based off of written works like you got more in the earlier decades, but the more I reflect on this, I could tell this story works as a play, as it really only has a few major set pieces. Now in this movie though, they do give us a little bit more than that, but looking at it, I could tell that you really just need to have the hotel room, the ship, the restaurant, and then the castle to convey all of the information that you need for this movie. With just a little bit of dressing it up, you could also even have it be switching scenes here and there. But those are really the four main plot points that you would need to continue on with the story. Now going from the idea that this is a play, 
this was made pretty fast off the success of the story that I was referring to earlier that I rather enjoy of The Cat and the Canary. Now, the 1939 version of that film showed the chemistry of Hope and Goddard. So this was made something like eight months after that to ride that momentum. And the studio really wanted to kind of play off of what they did in that one of an old dark house film, since that was what the other one was. And I think that one's also part comedy. I do think that the two leads play well off of each other, and they bring some solid acting and comedy as well, like each one of them do, but together they kind of bring it out much more and better. But I do have a problem calling this an old dark house film, though, as it really is only like the last 20 minutes or so that you are there. So that's just something that I kind of noticed about this one, that I see what they're trying to do, but it doesn't necessarily fit that same type of style. Now, speaking of these type of films, what is interesting here is that it starts as a gangster movie where Larry gets himself in hot water. And I like the comedic setup we have for our lead, you know, to end up heading towards Cuba. He is a pretty chivalrous guy to help Mary, but I think a lot of that is she's attractive. But what is interesting is that I didn't trust any of the characters aside from Mary and Alex. Larry is our hero, but his connections to the underworld make me question him a bit. Jeff comes off as untrustful from the moment you meet him. Now, he does help Mary in explaining something she finds on the back of her door being a voodoo hex that means death. But I think for part of why I don't like him is that he wants Mary away from Larry. I just don't trust him and his intentions from that early point. But then we also don't know who to trust from Parada, Javes, Ramon. Even after Ramon dies, Quinn also shows up as his twin brother, Francisco. But I didn't know who to trust from any of that group. Now that does keep me hooked into the movie to be honest and does well in building the mystery that this film needs. But there is an elephant in the room that I really should bring up and I'm not going to get all up in arms as some people that I've seen review this movie or given it a blurb online. But there's quite a bit of racism in this movie. It doesn't really address it though as it just kind of accepts it. And I mean a lot of that is just the era. And that's why I can't really heart down too much on it as well. But it is fitting that I'm watching this while there are protests going on in the United States. As Alex is being played by a black actor of Willie Best. He's playing a character that is over the top. Now, I'm glad that they did cast somebody who is black to play this role and not have somebody who is in blackface. Or somebody who is just a different race to play this character. Now, Larry does make some really horrible comments that made me cringe throughout towards him as well as to native americans but i know for me i remember learning in film class though that during this era they did a lot of that because i mean a majority of your audience is going to be white males or white females that are going to see this so at the time this was socially accepted it doesn't make it right and i mean it actually i mean it's pretty horrible but it's one of those things that i can't really you know like i said come down too hard on something that's 80 years old now, on top of that, Mary's inheritance was on the back of slave traders. That castle, that's what they were used for, and they even find in the movie some of the shackles and stuff that were probably used in the movie world for that. Now, what I'm also referring to, there is an issue that I do have with not casting minorities in minority roles, is Brissac is the mother of a zombie, and she's just wearing makeup to make her look... I'm not sure if she's supposed to be black or if she is supposed to be of, like, Hispanic descent, but Johnson... On the other hand, who plays her son is black. And I don't want to get into all up in arms again, like I say, and knowing the film history like I do, and that this is an 80-year-old movie, but I really did want to address it while I had this platform to, and, you know, kind of move on from there. Now, getting away from my issues that I had there, I do think the acting is solid here. Hope is someone that I grew up knowing about his humanitarian efforts, and, you know, I applaud him for that. 
I think his performance here as Larry is good. He makes some really good puns and wisecracks, which did have me, you know, cracking up at different times. Now, you do have to get past his normalized racism of the times, but I thought he was likable still. Goddard is one of my favorite characters in this movie, though. She's a strong, independent woman who didn't want to be kind of told what to do and is going to, you know, claim her inheritance and, you know, go from there. I don't like, though, that near the end that they made her need Larry. But again, that's the times and what people expected in movies. I was also a big fan of Best, despite how they had him play his character as a caricature. But again, that's of the times. It was nice to see Cor Boba, as I just saw him last week in another 1940s film, as he was in Before I Hang, as I believe he is the piano player that is friends with Boris Karloff in that movie. Now, Quinn is another actor that I've seen periodically in, I think, film noir movies. And I also believe I've seen him play The Hunchback of Notre Dame that I covered on this podcast much earlier in the year, or even the previous year. I'm not really sure which was it now. The rest of the cast I find to be in their support, you know, in building the story and the mystery and everything like that. Don't really have any negative issues that I really want to say there. Now, the last thing I did want to cover would be the effects. There's not a lot in the movie like this, and you don't really need them. I do find that I need to commend what they do for the ghost in the movie, though. It isn't anything groundbreaking from movies before this, but for me, it just still amazes me what they could do with something, you know, 80 years old when CGI doesn't even look good doing some of this stuff today. It just shows that it can be done. It just does cost time and money, and I really wish more people would kind of go the more practical route or, you know, tricks of camera. But again, it might be hard to do now with film. I'm not really sure, but... It just does look better here than a lot of things that I see coming out today. The movie is shot fine in my opinion, and I really dug the castle that they had that they end up in at the end of the movie as well, as that was a cool setting. So now with that said, this movie is problematic due to when it was made. It is fun with a, you know, mystery as well as comedy, with some horror elements splashed in there. We have a pretty solid cast despite how some of the things are written and how they play their roles. I never got bored with this, and so the runtime that they have of 85 minutes really works there. It feels like an old dark house film based off of a play, but on a grander scale. And it almost kind of feels like the basis that you would see would turn into giallo films after that as well. Just something I kind of just thinking as I was, you know, recording this. The effects they use here for the ghost still impress me even after all these years. The soundtrack also fit for what they needed as well. And I would say that this is an above average movie. It's just lacking enough elements for me not to put it in that good range. So my rating here is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. And I just had a few bits of trivia that I kind of wanted to throw out here before I close this out, which Bob Hope said that this he enjoyed this role since it was a total change of pace for him. In most of the films, you know, he portrays a coward, while in this one he is somewhat heroic. The play The Ghost Breaker by Paul Dickey and Charles W. Goddard was filmed twice as a silent film, once in 1914, and that was directed by Cecil D. DeMille, which I think is interesting as I do believe that Bob Hope drops a joke about him which is kind of a almost a meta approach to things that you don't really necessarily see until years later. And then again, they made one in 1922 that was silent. Now, both of these versions are considered lost, but the play was filmed a final time as Scared Stiff in 1953. Now, that one stars Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, with Bob Hope making a cameo in that film as well. This is the film debut of actor Robert Ryan, even though he is uncredited as an intern. The castle in the story is called the Castillo Maldito, which means the castle of the damned or evil castle. 
as I brought up earlier, The Cat and the Canary with Bob Hope and Paulette Goddard from 39 became such a big hit that Paramount began looking for another old dark house stage play that they could be turned into a similar vehicle for the pair. They had this film in theaters less than eight months later, which is pretty impressive. This is another one that was sold to, you know, television distribution and was part of, you know, the Bob Hope, the Universal Bob Hope tribute collection. Since at that time has enjoyed, you know, occasional airings on Turner Classic Movies. The play itself opened up on Broadway in 1913 and it closed in the same year after 72 performances. And then the opening night included H.B. Warner, who would also star in the 1914 film adaptation of that play. Now, there was two different occurrences where Screen Directors Playhouse would broadcast a 30-minute radio adaptation that starred Bob Hope reprising his role in 49, and then a 60-minute version of it in 51, who also had Bob Hope. Now, there is a joke about Democrats being like zombies that was pointed to for many years as evidence of Bob Hope's political affiliations, but in fact, Hope made jokes about both political parties throughout his long career and was actually on good terms with many presidents on both sides there. And then getting back to the Robert Ryan trivia is he does not appear in this film as an ambulance medic. The question, the actor, the extra in question looks slightly like him, but it's not him. And then the last piece is a bit of trivia that is a spoiler. I'm not going to go into it, but there is a character that is credited in the credits, but nobody ever addresses him by name. And he has three awkward appearances where in my notes, I brought this up a few times and it never goes anywhere, which is kind of annoying that he gets introduced, but we don't really have any reason why for that is, but I digress, but that's all I really wanted to delve into here. Not going to do a spoiler section on this film as I don't think there's enough deeper social commentary to kind of go over. I feel like I went over everything that I wanted to. I'm going to get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Welcome to paradise. It's nice. Peaceful. (laughs) Oh, I was going to say terrifying. What does that say? Looks like dream catchups. Did you know that the spirits wander through these woods? Do all these catch bad dreams? Some do. Some catch evil spirits. Josh. Josh. never had nightmares before, not like this. As a psychotherapist, I can tell you kids have issues. Ah, I'm sorry. Ah. Okay. Sorry, I just I'm so tired. Josh, dreams don't come from out here. They come from in here. You're in control. I'm in control? That's right. Where is it? You're both in danger. You need to destroy it. Can't be. Uh, Did you do this? Gail, come on. Controlled. He's experiencing latent violent tendencies. It's not Josh. It's this. It can't be destroyed. There is something living in there. Rhoda Mitchell, Henry Thomas, and Lynn Shea. Josh! I'm in control. I'm in, I'm in control. Dreamcatcher. And for 
for my second feature review here on this episode is going to be Dreamcatcher from 2020. And I should just go ahead and welcome you back from the trailer for this movie. Now, this is directed by Carrie Harris, who also came up with the story with Dan B. Shea, and Dan also wrote the screenplay. This stars Rada Mitchell, Henry Thomas, and Finlay Wojtek Hisong. This is a horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.8 on IMDb and a 2.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, in order to stop his bad dreams, a young boy steals a dreamcatcher from a mysterious neighbor, forcing his family to rescue him from a nightmarish entity. Now, I will say that synopsis is a little bit misleading, as there are aspects of that that are what's happening here, but not everything as they describe there is exactly how it goes. But this was a film that when my girlfriend Jamie wanted to watch a movie with me, and asked her, and she asked me kind of what I was looking for that I needed to watch this week. I did inform her that I needed a 2020 film to keep on my pace for feature reviews here on this podcast for this, you know, journey through the art segment that I've been doing. Now, I made a list of possibilities, and this is the one that after she watched the trailer, thought it looked kind of interesting. Now, aside from that, I knew who starred in it, and then outside of that, I came in pretty blind. But I will admit, as I said, the synopsis is a little bit off. But we start this off with Becky, who is Jules Wilcox, as she's going for a run. And she lives out in the middle of nowhere in this kind of fancy house with a bunch of weird windows. Now, she stops running and thinks she is hearing things coming from the woods. And then she thinks she hears it again as she's coming by this tall grass. And it sounds like whispering from little kids. So then she decides to go inside and takes a bath, but she hears bumping around below her. When she comes down to check that, she doesn't find anything. Now she is sitting down by a piano and starts to play, hears something, walks away, comes back, and we can see that she has a microphone. So I believe she is doing this as her job, but then we see a boy pop up from behind her and then it cuts away. So then we shift to a vehicle driving through the countryside, a la something like The Shining. Now, this movie doesn't have anything in it that's nearly as good as that movie, but that's just kind of what I thought of when I saw this opening sequence. And, you know, taking from this, I will kind of correlate it back to why I brought up The Shining here in a minute. Now, the driver is Luke, who is Henry Thomas, and his girlfriend, who is sitting next to him, is Gail, Rada Mitchell. Becky was his former wife who has passed away, and she is the mother of the boy in the back seat, who is Josh, who is Woltak Hisong. Now, he's not acclimating well to his father seeing Gail, Josh is having nightmares as he's trying to stay in this cabin where his mother passed away. The story he was told is that she drowned in the nearby pond, but as the movie goes on, we learn that's not the case of what actually happened there. Gail is a child psychologist, and she is trying to analyze his dream, I think partially to help Josh be at ease, as well as his father, but he doesn't seem to be on board with what she is trying to tell him. Now, it all takes a turn, though, when... Luke is forced to go back into the city for his job, and that is leaving Josh alone with his girlfriend. And then things things don't go so hot, though. He is kind of rude to her in the things that he says, but she is trying her hardest to befriend him. Josh does play some pretty mean jokes on her, one of the which is with a well that's out in the middle of the woods. He also runs off where he discovers a shop belonging to Ruth, who is Lin Shay. She used to sell dream catchers and other similar items, but Gail thinks it's just a way for people to cope without actually dealing with their problems. And we get to see a scene later on where the two of them butt heads, which I did end up enjoying that scene, as that's probably some of the best acting we get in this movie. As things seem to be getting better between Gail and Josh, he sneaks off one morning to Ruth's. 
Gail goes looking for him, and once she finds him, she has him wait outside while the two women talk. This is the moment that I'm talking about where the acting is actually pretty solid. Now, he takes this time to sneak off into the barn where he finds a hidden dream catcher. He steals it and starts to sleep better at night as he's actually kind of treating it almost like a teddy bear and has his arm around it. But he's having vivid dreams of his mother, and we start to learn the truth of what happened to her, as well as to Ruth's grandson, Noah, who we get to see in the movie as Duncan Foster Allen, and that the dream catcher that Josh took might not necessarily actually be a dream catcher. And that's where I'm going to leave my recap. But to start my thoughts here of the actual analyzation of this, I did leave out that the movie begins with giving us a definite def a dictionary definition of what a dream catcher is and what this movie is making up as its own thing is a dream catcher with a k jamie did have me look up the latter and there isn't actually anything out there so this is something that is made up for the movie which i'm fine with it is supposed to be asymmetric with black strings that holds evil and that the origins are unknown now you normally have me on board if you're trying to create your own lore if you can handle it properly and for me you really need to not necessarily give everything to me, but I need to know that you know everything about it in writing it. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. And in this aspect, I do agree with, for the most part, that they do a good job with this. Now, we have an interesting dynamic here that felt very similar to one of my favorite movies of the year so far in The Lodge. We have Becky, who in this case didn't kill herself, but did die. Luke brings his son Josh to the middle of nowhere with his new girlfriend, who the child particularly doesn't like and then leaving them alone together. It isn't established, but it feels like this movie is trying to tell us that Gail was Josh's doctor, and that is how she met Luke. But like I said, this isn't established, so I can't confirm or deny that. But I will also digress, you know, going any farther there. But Josh and Gail do start to get along quite well, and there's a possibility of a supernatural take on what is happening here as well. But I like how they frame it in ways at times where it doesn't necessarily seem like it like there's a moment where the two of them butt heads because she hits her head on a cabinet door that's been open i don't recall seeing it open on its own and i kind of just thought it was left open by accident and she hit her head but she's trying to use this to correlate things back to his father that he's trying to do because he doesn't like her but i mean there are other times where there's like glass in her milk or a fish hook into her hand where she is intentionally blaming him and correlating things back where some of these could be just literally attributed to accidents now what becomes my problem with this movie is that it's boring for a movie that runs 85 minutes it takes too long to get us where we're going and doesn't do enough to hook me back in i think in part of this though there are other movies that are out currently doing similar things to this one just better this is coupled with the decisions made by the characters that don't really make sense to me in the climax. Like a character gets tied up and I'm like, why would you do this with how she is responding and talking to each other? It just doesn't feel like that's how you would kind of go about that. Along with that, the ending didn't necessarily work for me, unfortunately. This really does feel like a combination of The Lodge and The Wretched to me. The specific parts of others work better than what we get here, though, is what I was bringing up a minute ago. And that's what I was also referring back to. I, the opening feels like The Shining, where this movie seems to be borrowing aspects from different movies and just not necessarily doing them well enough to stand on its own. Then to shift this over to the acting, I thought it was a bit hit or miss, if I'm going to be honest. I thought Mitchell was fine as the lead here. She seems like a psychologist who just can't shut it off, and it rubs Ruth the wrong way during their one major encounter. And it also creates a rift between her and Lou. And I'll admit, this does build some tension, and I thought that was good. Thomas and Shade just kind of feel like 
they're kind of collecting a paycheck. I wasn't overly impressed with either of them. Now, I did think Wilcox is solid in the haunting way that she needs to be. And then I also commend Joshua Bashara for the limited role that he has in the movie as well. And I thought the rest of the cast were fine for what was needed. But like I said, the acting just kind of feels uneven to me and not enough of it is good enough. Now, really, the last thing that I wanted to go over would be the effects of the movie. I thought for the most part they were fine. From what I remember, they go practical on quite a bit, which I'm always down with. There are some things that are done with the nightmare aspects of the film with Becky that I thought were fine, but I do have an issue that the movie keeps using this nightmare aspect way too much. I mean, with a movie called Dreamcatcher, you know you're going to have to use sleep as your kind of thing. I just don't feel that what the movie is trying to do is strong enough, and... When you're using the dream sequence to try to build up your scares, I'm not always the biggest fan of because of the fact that it just feels like laziness to me. But I will say the night hag that we get in this movie was enhanced with CGI and it didn't have any issues with there. And I'll also say the cinematography was pretty solid aside from just my issues with that I had laid out, you know, just recently here. So now with that said, this movie really does have some interesting concepts. There is one section of dialogue addressing cancel culture, which I did appreciate that. And then the rest of the movie really just was very vanilla for me. It doesn't go far enough to really hook me. And the movie is just boring overall. If I'm going to be perfectly honest, I think the acting is very up and down. The effects are well done for the most part, but it just relies too much on dream sequences. The soundtrack didn't really stand out. It doesn't really hurt the movie either, if I'm going to be honest. Overall, I'd say that this is just an average movie to me, and I can't really recommend it if I'm going to be honest, just because there are things that are, as I've said before, doing things similar just better. And so I came in with a 5 out of 10 for this movie, and because of that, there's not really anything that I needed to delve into for a spoiler section here, because I kind of feel everything I really wanted to go over, and the things that I'm not are just spoilers and... I don't necessarily know if you're going to want to check this movie out off of this review or anything else that other people probably have said about it, but like I said, just very average and I'd probably avoid it. But I'm going to go ahead and get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. Who am I now? I'm so taking day. 
Thank you all for listening to episode 31 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so in various ways. If you would like to send an email, you can send that to journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of my reviews on this episode or any of the other reviews I've done, you can read those at Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. And you can become friends with me on facebook at david michigan garrett jr on twitter you can find me at buckeye from mish letterboxd i'm david osu on instagram i'm david osu 87 and if you want to join on the flick chat app you just have to download that on ios or on android and it is an app from there and my join code to get in on what i'm watching ahead of time is journey with a cinephile And I also have some message boards for the episodes as well as any of the bonus episodes that I will have put up there. And anything will also have links in the show notes as well to make it easier for you in any way that I can. Now for the next episode is going to be another journey through the aughts. I'm not sure on the 2020 release. I'm going to talk with Jamie to see if there's anything that on this list of 2020 releases that she would be interested in checking out. But I will have one of those on there regardless. But I will be watching, I believe you'll, it's the, the title of the movie is You'll Find Out. So I'm going to hopefully watch that as my 1940s release as I continue to work through that year. But, and I guess the last thing I would like to say and ask would be if you could go ahead and rate or review on whatever podcasting app you're listening to this on. Just so that way I can kind of get an idea of, you know, some feedback to make this show as best as I can and if you could also subscribe as well just so that way anytime I drop a new episode that you don't miss it but I think that's all I really wanted to kind of go over I know that we're still going through some turbulent times at this point so whatever you're doing today please do it safely and this is David Garrett Jr. signing off